Almighty Father God, we thank you for being a God who is powerful, who is strong, who is mighty. When you stretch forth your hand, there are none to thwart it. You are our God. We confess this morning, Father, that we too often assume that we're stronger than we are. Father, we are weak and undone, broken. We're unable to do what's most important. We're able to order and orchestrate so much of our lives. We're able to schedule and plan and do so many things that we then make the false assumption that we can do the things that are most important. We come this morning, Father, confessing to you that the things that are of most value and need in our lives are not the things that our hands can do or our strength can do, but only the things that you can do for us. And so this morning, Father, I pray that as we come to your word that you will grant your spirit to come. Convince us that you are strong and that we are weak. And that we too often place our confidence and our trust in our strength and in so many things that are around us that the world considers strong. And help us, Father, I pray, see with new eyes that apart from your moving and acting and doing, we are helpless and we are hopeless. So grant, I pray, your help during this time that your word will go forth and triumph and accomplish what you so desire in our midst. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Signs are incredibly important and helpful. Signs are good for us to have. They give us indicators of things that are to come. A sign that's on the other side of the intersection is not as helpful as the sign that tells you what the intersection is before you approach it, especially if you're in South Florida trying to find streets. Signs are also not very helpful if they're covered by branches or limbs not helpful at all if they are there but yet they cannot be read or understood signs also help us in the sense that they give us warning they tell us of things to come and they help us prepare ourselves as we begin to um, prepare prepare for what is to come by the sign that may be given to us this morning what we have in our text in exodus chapter 7 we're going to be looking specifically at verses 8 through 13 this morning We noticed verses 1 through 7 last week. We're going to be looking at the sign that the Lord is giving to Pharaoh and his council prior to the plagues, the ten plagues happening. This is not one of the plagues, but this is a sign. Some have referred to it as a portent. That's the word I'm going to use this morning so that we can learn a new word. It's a portent or a sign or an indicator of something that is to come. And the Lord here is giving Pharaoh and affirming for both Aaron and Moses 
that he is indeed a God who is strong and mighty indeed. He is a God who's not just simply strong and mighty, but he is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He has power above and over all deities and all gods and all things that the Egyptians are trusting in. Make note, the Egyptian culture was the finest and most powerful, most influential and understood to be the, the, um, the epicenter of all the intelligence and intellectual savvy of its day. It was known for, 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 its, for its ability to do and to create. We even today marvel at the wonders of their uh, ability as we look at, this, let's say, the pyramids of this time period. That's the kind of power and influence that is the backdrop to what the Lord is doing in the midst of these people here in our text this morning. As Pharaoh, this one who was a shepherd, and Aaron come to Pharaoh, which is the most influential man in all the earth, and explain to him that they're going to, they're going to, that their Lord, their God, the God of the Hebrews, was going to deliver them from the hand of this Pharaoh. And so this is a sign, a portent, an indicator of the strength of God. It's a foretaste. And then the rest of these plagues are going to show step by step, blow by blow, that God um, did not misunderstand his strength, but that God, in fact, is the one who is all-powerful, one who will thwart all attempts to his power and his authority and to his sovereignty. So as we look this morning at verses 8 through 13, I want us to notice the three different aspects of this passage, the three different categories or, 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 or headings of this passage. If you would notice, excuse me, with me first, verses 8 and 9, the direction for the portent or the sign, the direction. So in verses 8 and 9, the Lord is giving direction to Aaron and Moses for this sign or this portent, direction for the portent. Number two, point number two, is the description of the portent. And this is in verses 10 through 12. Verses 10 through 12, we're going to see a description of how this sign or this portent is played out and what actually takes place. And then finally and thirdly, we're going to be looking at the, the denial of the portent. The direction, the description, and then finally and thirdly, the denial of this portent as the Lord works in the midst of these people. This is not the first time that Moses and Aaron have approached Pharaoh. I want us to turn back, if you will, and notice that just a, a chapter back, we find that, the, the, that the, uh, Moses and Aaron go before the Lord, and it actually makes things, or it goes before the Pharaoh, and it actually makes things worse and not better. But in fact, Pharaoh and those who are around him uh, make God's people, the Hebrews, to no longer have straw, so now they're having to make brick without the straw and keep up with the quota, and things get worse, not better. Moses is still trying to figure out whether he's the adequate person to be in this role, to do this delivering that God has called him to. And what we find, as we mentioned last week, is that in chapter 7 specifically, we find no more hesitancy in Moses. Moses instead is one who is confident that the Lord is going to work and we see from chapter 7 onward, as the Lord works powerfully and mightily through Moses and Aaron, excuse me, yes, through Moses and Aaron, that um, the, Moses is confident that he is the man that God has called him to, 
to deliver these people. Notice with me, if you will, in verse 8. Verses 8 and 9, the direction for the portent. Here we do not have Moses and Aaron acting. We have the Lord speaking to Moses and Aaron and explaining to them what they're to do when they go back into the presence of Pharaoh. And so what we find here in verse 8, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, This is Moses saying to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. Now, where does this come from? Where does this staff becoming a serpent come from? You remember that it actually comes from back in chapter 4. Look with me, if you will, a couple pages back in chapter 4. And we see that this is where the Lord has given Moses these signs. And the first of these signs is the staff turning into the serpent. So notice with me, if you will. Moses first, it says in verse 2, the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. Verse 3 of chapter 4, throw it on the ground, and he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. Of course, Moses runs from it. He puts out his hand. He catches a serpent. The second sign is the hand turning to leprosy. The third sign is the water being poured out, turning to blood. Notice what it says there in verse 17. As we go in chapter 4, verse 17, the Lord says, and take, your, and take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. Do you see that there? Notice in verse 20 of chapter 4. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. So now here Moses is going back to Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. The staff of God in his hand. And then I want you to notice as well. As we go down further in chapter 4 and verse 30, Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And what did the people do? They believed, it says. And the people believed when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction and they bowed their heads and worshiped. What I want you to notice is that these signs that Moses and Aaron were given, specifically Moses in chapter 4, were all for the purpose of God's people believing in him. And so notice what it says in verse 1 of chapter 4. Then Moses answered, Behold, I will, I will, uh, they will not believe me, is Moses' plea. And then in verse 5 of chapter 4, he says, I want you to do this sign with the staff and the snake, that, verse 5, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. And so it's saying they, the ones who have this one that's the God of the fathers of, of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, the believers, the Hebrews, are to believe. It's not for the Egyptians to believe, but for the Hebrews to believe that the Lord is their God. All right? And it says in the end of chapter 4, that's exactly what, what happened. That these people, they believed and they worshipped their God. So the question I have in our passage this morning in chapter 7, notice with me if you will. Chapter 7 it says, when the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, he tells Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by, the work, by, by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. And so the Lord is saying to Moses and Aaron that Pharaoh's going to ask for proof. Pharaoh's going to ask for a sign. He's going to ask for, it says here, a miracle. 
a wonder. And when he does, the Lord is telling Moses and Aaron to take this staff and do this first sign. Now, the, the purpose of those signs was for the purpose of the, the, the Hebrews to believe. It was not for the Egyptians to believe. What we find in our passage, specifically, look with me again real quick at chapter 4, verse 21. Chapter 4, verse 21. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. In other words, these signs that he's mentioned in chapter 4 earlier with the staff and the hand and the water turning to blood. He says, Make sure you do all of these miracles that I have put into your power. But... I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And so these signs, this is what I want you to see this morning, were for the purpose of causing God's people to believe, but it was also for Pharaoh to be hardened and to continue to push away from this God of the Hebrews. God's, these signs were to promote belief in his people, and, and that also we see that it was going to also harden Pharaoh's heart. So notice with me, as they take this staff and they consider it, why is it? Why is it that the Lord wanted Aaron and Moses to use this particular event, this particular wonder, this particular miracle for for Pharaoh? Well, first I believe it was because Pharaoh Pharaoh asked for a miracle, and the first one on the list that God had given to Moses and Aaron was that miracle of turning the staff into a serpent. Second, what I want you to see is that he didn't do, what we find here in our passage is they didn't do all the different miracles, the three, the hand as well as the blood, because specifically what we see here is that the Lord says the Pharaoh is going to ask for a miracle, just a miracle. And then notice it says, then you shall say to Aaron, verse 9, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh. So is this Aaron's staff or is this Moses' staff? Well, what we find in our passage back in chapter 4 is that it's God's staff. And it's the staff of God that both Aaron and Moses were using, speaking of God's authority. And so as we look here in this passage, what we'll find is that this staff is being used as speaking of God's authority, and it's being used in this particular passage, in our passage here in chapter 7, by, um, by Aaron. Later, what we'll find is this is the very staff that Moses used when he strikes the rock, when he holds it over the Red Sea, and other events that takes place. It's the same staff that the Lord is using here. So, the Lord is giving direction to Moses and Aaron to accomplish this particular portent or this particular sign. And the question here is this, how does this apply to us? And I want to take a little bit of a detour to help you understand better, hopefully, how you can study your Bible. Because as I was, as I was listening to messages on this and as I was reading text on this, I realized that we live in a day and age that so often... Um, we're, we may be good at studying our Bible, but we may take um, wrong avenues or paths in way of applying our Bible to ourselves. One of the most common misapplications of Scripture, the, uh, the most common error in applying Scripture to our lives, is when we read our Bibles, and all of us do this to some extent, so this is why the warning is here. When we read our Bibles, we want to place ourselves in the text. We want to see ourselves... Um, as Moses or as Aaron, and some of us maybe even want to see ourselves and understand ourselves in Pharaoh's shoes. This is not a faithful way to understand and apply our Bible. Why, you may ask. Well, I would make the case that this is not how anybody would have understood or applied their Bible 
who was reading it back during the time of the Old Testament. For example, let me give you an example. In the Old Testament, do we have any other leader going before a leader of some country and saying, Moses took a staff and threw it down, and it turned into a serpent. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to apply that passage by doing the same thing before some leader that's in front of me. We don't see that with the Assyrian leader or the Babylonian leaders. We don't see that by any of the New Testament um, people. When Paul was confronted by the leadership in Rome, he didn't say, I'm going to take a staff with me and throw it down, and it's going to prove that God is powerful. You see, that kind of understanding, and so many times we have today, we, we place ourselves in the text And then the application becomes, the next time I'm confronted by someone that's around me, then I'm going to do what God has called Moses to do here, and I'm going to take a staff with me, and I'm going to throw it down, it's going to become a snake, and the Lord's going to show my boss and all those who have authority around me that God is more powerful than they are. And we laugh, and we think that's ridiculous. But there are a lot of people in our day that go to churches today that think that's that's how we apply this passage. We do foolish, mystical things like that. We approach the Bible with ourselves at the center of it. But if you would, let me suggest to you that a better way to apply the passage is to consider how the first hearers of our text understood the passage. So what we do is we begin asking the question, who was it that was the first hearers of Exodus chapter 7? Well, most would say that the first people that were hearing this text, why Moses wrote Genesis through Deuteronomy was for specifically that generation of people that were going to the promised land. These that were going to the promised land and that were going to be settling there in the promised land. And what did they see as their role as they looked at this and they heard this? They were not looking at this passage and trying to find themselves. In fact, chapters 1 through 6 of Exodus explains with clarity that Moses had a unique calling and a unique equipping that was only his, right? We so often think that Moses is like me, and I can apply it to... No, we need to understand that Moses is given to us in chapters 1 through 6 as being very clearly one who had a unique calling and unique abilities. What was it that the first hearers, these, this generation that was going into the Promised Land, what was it that they saw when they looked at this text? They didn't see themselves there, but instead they were looking for their God there. And that's how we should begin thinking about applying our Bibles. When we read our Old Testament and our New Testament, it's not helpful for us to be automatically putting ourselves into the story so that we are like David that confronts the giant or we're like Daniel that is standing against the culture. That's not a helpful way to apply the Scriptures. That's not how those who read it after it was written understood it. The best way for us to apply the passage is first to ask the question, Who were the first hearers, and what did they look for? And in in almost every case, they were looking for the God who's the God of Moses. They were not looking for themselves in the passage. And so this morning, I suggest that as they were looking at this passage, and as it was being read after Moses was dead and gone, this first generation of of, um, Jews that were going into the promised land, what they wanted to see wasn't how they could take a staff and turn it into a snake. What they wanted to see is the power and authority of their God who, though Moses was gone, was still a God who would work powerfully for them. So as they went into, as they were called to go into the land of the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, they knew that this God of Moses was a God that was more powerful than even the God of Egypt, so therefore he must be a God who's more powerful than the gods of the people groups that were in Canaan. And so as we apply our Bibles, my encouragement to you is this. To not look for yourselves in the scriptures, 
But look for God in the Scriptures. And then when you see that attribute, that, that, that characteristic, that God that is being portrayed in the Bible, then, take, then trust that God as opposed to trying to place yourself in the Scriptures. It's led to incredible harm in the church today. Because when we begin looking at our Bibles and wanting to see us in it, you know what we do? We make a man-centered theology and a man-centered hermeneutic, a man-centered way of applying our Bible, as if this whole Bible was for me to live out the way these guys lived out their lives. And you're not called to live out like Moses is, or like David, or like so many others. We're called to live under the authority of the God who's being portrayed here. And so I I, kind of took a detour there to help us see that so often when we look at these miracles and these these things that we're going to be seeing here shortly, the, the, um, the plagues and that kind of thing, what we're supposed to be seeing here isn't how can we cause frogs to inhabit our subdivision, right? The point is that we look at this and see the God who is over all things and all creatures. And so this morning as we look at verses 1 through 2, or excuse me, um, verses 8 and 9, we see that the Lord is calling us today to trust him and know that God will prove himself in every situation to be a faithful God to what? Notice what it says in verses 8 and 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by the working uh, miracle, then you shall say to him, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. You know what these guys are doing, Aaron and Moses? They're obeying the word of God. See, it says that in verse 8. Verse 8 says, Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, They were obeying the word of God. And the Lord was doing a mighty and amazing thing to prove himself strong to those who are around him. So don't take a staff to your next business meeting, okay? Trust and obey the word of God that he has given to you and watch the Lord prove himself to be strong and mighty in the midst of his people. We can trust the Lord to faithfully fulfill his word every single time. Our Lord, the God of Exodus, is an omnipotent God who is over all forces and powers and everything that's around us, not only in the culture during the time of Exodus, but also in our day as well. That's why it says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 21, that Jesus Christ is above all rule and authority and power and dominion. He is above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Christ is powerful. It says in Ephesians, at the end of the book of Ephesians, in chapter 6, that we're to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, putting on the full whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Notice this, because we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but instead against rulers and against authorities and against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Brothers and sisters, our Bible tells us in verses 8 and 9 that our God is a God who's powerful over all these things. And he's powerful over policies and politics and systems. And we can trust that he'll prove himself strong over and over again as we trust his word and as we obey his word. So the Lord is directing Moses and Aaron that this sign is to be performed. Now we turn in point two and notice the description of this portent. Moses and Aaron actually go and do this work. Trusting in the Lord means that we move forward in obedience at some point in time. We don't just sit back and wait and say, you know what, I'm going to trust the Lord. 
And the Lord keeps prompting us to be obedient in certain areas. Nope, nope, I'm just going to trust the Lord. No, we find in verses 10 through 12 that Moses and Aaron then move forth and actually walk out, uh, walk out this, this direction in obedience. They walk out God's word through obedience. And so we see first that Moses and Aaron goes before Pharaoh. In verse 10, it says Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did, notice this, just as the Lord commanded Look with me, if you will, in verses 1 through 13. Go all the way back up in verse 2. Verse 2 of chapter 7. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell, the, tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go. All that I command you. You see that in verse 2? Drop down to verse 6. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Verse 10, so Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded them. Notice verse 13, how it ends. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He would not listen to them. Notice the last phrase in verse 13, as the Lord had said. So we see here that Moses and Aaron were going, but they were going to do just what the Lord had told them to do. This is this is incredible how it continues to mention this in verses 1 through 13. And it's not mentioned in the previous going before Pharaoh. In other words, the time when it failed and everything became worse and not better for God's people, it doesn't say that Moses and Aaron went and did exactly what the Lord had told them to do. But here, it's saying that they're going and they're doing exactly what the Lord had told them to do, and what we're going to find is that the the Lord then is going to work on their behalf. This is crazy. This is insane. They're going before the the man that's, that's most influential in the entire world, and they're going to throw their staff down, in faith to trust that the Lord's going to turn it into a snake. Because that's what the Lord said. And yet the Lord is calling his people to walk by faith. And too many times when we're going to do what God's called us to do, and we're going to be faithful to what God's clearly given to us in his word to do, it's going to look silly and ridiculous to the world around us. Our boss may not understand if he's not a believer. Our our loved ones and our family members aren't going to understand why you raise your kids the way you do or do the things you do. Why? Because they don't have a concept of the Lord doing things that seem ridiculous to the world, and yet this is what his word says, so we're going to be faithful to it. And the Lord's going to prove himself to be true. So it says in verse 10 that Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh, did just as the Lord commanded, and then in verse 10 it says, Aaron cast his staff Uh, cast the staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Now, what we don't have is Pharaoh saying, give me a proof. But we can only assume that that is true because God says that's what's going to happen. And so what we have here is the result of Pharaoh's asking, give me a proof, give me a sign that you're coming before me with a God who is powerful and mighty. Give me this proof that you can work a miracle. And what we have here is not Pharaoh saying anything, but instead Aaron doing what the Lord said he should do. He cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants. So Pharaoh and his servants are seeing this. And it became a serpent. And it became a serpent. So we see here that Moses and Aaron were being faithful to what God had called them to. Second thing I want you to notice is not only did Moses and Aaron go before Pharaoh, but then we see that Pharaoh, once he sees that this miracle is taking place, he tries to show up, he tries to show off by saying, look, my guys, my magicians, my wise men can do the same thing you're doing. Why, why would I obey you if I've got guys who can do the same thing? And we see that in verse 11. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers. 
the wise men and the sorcerers. These weren't the bottom of the barrel wise men and sorcerers. These were the Pharaoh's wise men and sorcerers. These weren't the quacks that were standing on the road yelling at people. These were the ones who proved themselves to be true in Pharaoh's eyes. These were the best of the best. He had called in, Pharaoh called in these wise men and these sorcerers, and they, and then he groups them together, all of these magicians of Egypt... So there's not three categories, there's only, there's only these two, the wise men and the sorcerers, and then it groups them together and says these all were magicians of Egypt. It says, also did the same by their secret arts. Now, first I want you to notice this, is that it's interesting that this, this, this sign, this miracle that's being performed, is one of a staff turning into a serpent. And the reason is because many of us, as we've gone through and looked at our history books as kids, we noticed that we've dug up a bunch of stuff over there in Egypt. And one of the things we've dug up is King Tut's um, basically archive of everything. And many of us have in our mind the, the, the golden picture of the headdress of King Tut, don't we? And if you remember, you can look at that. Number one, just looking at it from a distance, you can tell it looks like a, a cobra, doesn't it? With the, with the wings on the back of King Tut's head, it looks like a cobra. It was designed to show or to display this idea of the serpent the cobra specifically, as being this this amazing um, creature um, of divination, amazing creature of power and authority. And this power and authority of the serpent, specifically this cobra, was one that was close to the kings and the pharaohs of the Egyptian culture. If you look even more closely at that particular headdress, you'll find that on the forehead of um, King Tut is actually a serpent that's smaller that's raised up as if it's getting ready to strike. Pretty serious-looking headdress. And so we find that the serpent was a sign of power and authority for the Egyptians. What better way for the Lord to show himself to be strong as to, for Aaron to throw down the staff and it become a serpent, which is the very image and picture of the power and authority of Egypt. And Pharaoh then says, wait a minute, we, we, I've got wise men and sorcerers. I've got magicians that can do the same thing. Let me bring them in and show you that my power is equal with your power in way of what I'm able to do. Notice that our passage says that there's a difference. Why is it that the, ser- the staff being changed into a serpent worked for Aaron and Moses? Because the Lord told them to. The Lord told them to do that, and that's why they're doing it. What's the difference between that and the magicians doing it? It says in our passage in verse 11, they did the same how? Not by the word of the Lord, but by the secret arts, by the magic that was being done among them. Now, there's all kinds of commentators that talk about the fact that there's a way even today that you can take certain serpents and hold a portion of their head and they kind of stiffen up and they, they, come in, they become catatonic in the sense that they're kind of stiffened up and they become that way, and then if you throw them on the ground, they, they wake up out of that, and then they slither away. And there's all kinds of, it's amazing um, how many times, and I'm getting ready to get into the portion of the plagues where all these guys that are, call themselves Bible scholars that try to explain away all the plagues as if there were some physical, practical reason for all of them. They're doing the same thing with this. If it was just, if it was just um, slight of eye, slip of hand kind of magic it, it wouldn't be a big deal would it that, that that doesn't prove that the egyptians were equal with the god of the hebrews but pharaoh thinks it is see pharaoh's idea is that your gods 
He's thinking of the Hebrew. Your God is just as, just as strong, powerful as the gods that I worship. And he brings in his magicians to show that they are. But he says here that the way they do their trickery, the way the, the staffs turned into serpents, according to verse 11, is that they did this by secret arts. And what we find is that there's nothing around that to indicate that they were false, there was sleight of hand, there was some kind of trickery there, but they were in fact doing these things. We need to understand that our Bibles make very clear that there is a spiritual realm and that the secret arts exist and they do have a certain amount of power. They are able to do things. They are able to orchestrate and order things. Our Bibles never refuse that. They never turn away from that. It doesn't say ever that these things are foolishness. They're just cameras and lights and smoke show. They never mention that. You know what they say? They say they're done by the magic arts. And they never say that they are, um, that they are not strong. But everywhere in our Bible, what we find is that the power that is being wielded by these wise men and sorcerers is not more powerful than the God of heaven. Everywhere in our Bibles, we see that these, these secret arts exist, and yet God has authority over even them. And so we find in our Bibles, over and over again, in the Old Testament and in the New, did you notice this morning when we were reading in Acts 19? Ephesus was a New York City kind of like of, uh, uh, of the New Testament world. And there was all kinds of crazy, mystical spiritual things happening in Ephesus, Ephesus that, was, that was odd and weird. It said when Matt read that passage in, 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 uh, in Acts chapter 19, it says, And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. That's a lot of money translated. In other words, they, they weren't just dabbling over in the corner, a minority of people over here kind of dealing with the, the extra normal, the supernatural. No, they, this, this place called Ephesus was inundated with that. The, the time of Egypt was inundated with this kind of supernatural, paranormal, kind of dabbling with the secret arts. It's by no mistake, it's by no mistake that it says here, that as it, as it moves on in verse 11, it says they um, also did the same by their secret arts. Verse 12, for each man cast down his staff and they became serpents. And they became serpents. So we see that Moses and Aaron went. Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers. And then finally, I want you to see as this, this, this event, this portent is being described, that the, that the staff of God swallows up the other serpents. Notice in verse 12, for each man cast down his staff and they became serpents, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. So the sorcerers and the wise men, Pharaoh and his servants all saw this. And it's not hard to see what the point is. The God of heaven is going to easily swallow up all of your deities, all of your authority, all of your power, and all of your rule. There is no competition here. The God of heaven has all power and authority. And he's showing this as a sign. 
And then the plagues are going to come and, and underline and emphasize and highlight this very truth. And that is this. The God of the Hebrews, our God of Scripture, is more powerful than everything. Why did God's people during this day need to hear this? Well, they were getting ready to go into the promised land with all of these great, incredible cities that were built. Jericho and and all these amazing cities that were built. These were Hebrews that had been wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years um, rubbing sticks together to make fire and living in tents. And they're going to take on fortified cities. How in the world would they do it? God's saying in Exodus chapter 7, because the God that you serve is a God who's more powerful than any of that. More awesome than any of that. I read to you earlier, just a minute ago in a previous point, that it says here, it says in Ephesians chapter 1 that Christ is far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only of this age, but also the one to come. And then in chapter 6, verse 12, where it says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against every rule and against every authority, against cosmic powers and the present darkness. This is Ephesians chapter 6. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Why do you think Paul was mentioning these spiritual forces in the heavenly places? And that the Lord has all authority over these things, cosmic powers and present darkness. Well, if Ephesus is like it is described in Acts chapter 19, and it's full of all of these uh, supernatural things that are taking place, and all of these amazing, mysterious things, these secret arts that are taking place, why would Paul speak that in Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 6? He's saying that when you go into this culture of Egypt... Know that God is more powerful than their secret arts. When you go into this culture called Ephesus, God is more powerful. He's the one who has all authority and all rule and all dominion over everything that's out there, even these spiritual forces that you may not understand, that you think are incredible. And the Lord has turned to us and says that the mysticism and the spiritual powers of our day and of our culture is just as weak and inadequate. You see, my prayer is that the Lord by Spirit will convince you that that was, you know, sometimes we think, well, the Egyptians were kind of silly. I mean, we see the drawings on the, on the wall, and they were worshiping strange things like goats and snakes and crazy stuff. And, and, and the Ephesians, I mean, that was back during the New Testament time, and they were, they were worshiping all kinds of weird things, and they, they had all kinds of weird incantations and crazy stuff. But I'm glad we live today in a very modern society where we understand things better and we understand why things work and how things work and we can scientifically prove things and make things out. Do you know where the, the, the most money, from, I did a little reading, the, the most money is spent on psychics? You know where the most money is spent on psychics? It's in Manhattan, New York. I've heard an article that Dr. Moeller had mentioned, and I began researching that and found out that there's upwards of $700,000 that someone spent for a person to bring back his girlfriend or wife or something and to kind of talk to her. Um, there's incredible amount of money that's being made among the elite that we think of in our world today in foolishness and spiritual powers of darkness. I've been driving to the hospital every day for about six weeks, and what do I pass on Beach Boulevard? But Madame Ruby, who's been there for 100 years, and um, she, she obviously is making a living doing these very things. Have you noticed the endless amount of occult activity and things that are supernatural 
being promoted in, on our TV shows at night and on TV and on, in movies these days. You can't watch, hardly have a movie out there today or a TV show that's not dabbling in um, the dark side of some sort, these secret arts. My point is this. Our world is desperate to grasp the spiritual. This week, um, Ashley was up at, or down at the Cleveland Clinic, and one of the ladies came in and was explaining to me um, that, or explaining to Ashley and I, that um, you know, she, she, she sensed that Ashley had a good spirit and that she, was, that she, shouldn't be, she shouldn't be in the hospital because her spirit was so positive and that she then began communicating to us that there was this actor that she knew, and we would all know, but I'm not going to mention his name, that was on the Oprah Winfrey show, and that this actor was explaining his spiritual life and how he understood these spiritual things, and that um, what you need to do is, is, is write out on a piece of paper what you want and then begin thinking positively and pursuing this thing and, 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 and saying it out loud to yourself. We laugh and think that's foolish. You have neighbors and friends and family members and coworkers who are trusting in foolishness like that before they would ever trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is true. My hope is that we see that though the doctors at the Cleveland Clinic, they're considered, from what I understand, the best in the world at the problem that Ashley has. And if the Lord doesn't work, all of their efforts are vain. We've got to believe that. That if the Lord doesn't work, it doesn't matter how smart our politicians are. It's going to fall apart. If the, world doesn't, if the Lord doesn't work, it doesn't matter who gets voted in the office. It's not going to be good. Do you see how so many times we think that... Uh, let me give you another example. We're convinced that there's no way here in Jacksonville we can run out of food. Why? Because we have Publix. Publix will always have food. Did you know that if the Lord so willed, he can make it be a drought for, let's say, 18 months, and Publix would dry up? Do you see how we're not trusting in the Lord when we go to our meal at night and say our blessing? We say, thank you, Lord, for this meal. We, we in the back of our minds automatically, wrongly assume that it's Publix that brought us our food. And it is always the Lord that's putting that food on our table. And it always will be. If the Lord so chooses, then we're all doomed. My hope in explaining this to you is this, is that the foolishness of the Egyptians and their believing in the, in, in the, in the secret arts is no different than us trusting in all the things that our culture trusts in and believes is, is what brings our security and our hope. And it's all for naught apart from our God who is most powerful, who is all-powerful, working on our behalf. Brothers and sisters, our God is one who is the one true, omnipotent, all-powerful Lord of Scripture. And my question is this, are you going to listen to him? Because this is how our passage ends. Point three is the denial of the portent. Verse, um, verse 13. Even after Aaron's staff swallowed up the staffs of the Egyptians, it says, still Pharaoh's heart was hardened 
and he would not listen to them. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them. This morning, my prayer is that you've seen the word of God, that you see that clearly in Scripture is saying that God is more powerful than all these things that we so easily and so often do place our trust in. God's more powerful than those. And yet there are those here this morning who are not going to listen. You see, I say this is a portent because as it spoke here in verse 12, it said that Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. That's the beginning here of these plagues, right? We're getting ready to enter the plagues, verse 14. Turn with me, if you will, to chapter 15 of Exodus. Chapter 15 of Exodus. Chapter 15 It's the song of Moses after the Red Sea experience, and they're on the other side of the Red Sea, and Moses is singing this song, teaching it to God's people so that they can continue to sing it together as his people, as a declaration of God's power. The only other time that this word for swallowed occurs in the book of Exodus is here. In chapter 15, verses 12, verse 12, and in our passage that we're looking at this morning. So look at, let's look at chapter 15 of Exodus, verse 11 and 12. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods. Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. Notice this. You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. Now, was God more powerful in chapter 7, verse 12? Or was he more powerful in chapter 15, verse 12? He was equally powerful. How difficult was it for God's people to believe that God would swallow up all of their enemies and deliver them from Egypt? In chapter 7, extremely difficult for them to do that. Why? Because they didn't see it, nor do we. But in chapter chapter 15, verse 12, the Lord did it, and he mentions this word, and he says, and I swallowed them up. And they noticed that the very sea, the Red Sea, swallowed them up. And it says at the end of chapter uh, 14, I mention this often, chapter 14 of uh, Exodus, it says, Israel saw the great power of the Lord uh, used against the Egyptians, so, people, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed the Lord and his servant Moses. I'm calling you this morning to trust that God is powerful. And for many of you, you're on this side of the Red Sea. You're on the side where you haven't seen how it's going to work. But brothers and sisters, the Lord is powerful. And our Savior says that he will deliver his people who place their faith in Jesus Christ. That Jesus is, has all authority over heaven and earth. That it's not the flesh and blood that we're fighting against, but it's the principalities and the powers of the air. And that we can trust that our God is more powerful than all of these. And that there will be a day when we'll be brought into his presence Though that makes no sense to us right now, we have no idea how he's going to swallow up all of our enemies and bring us into his presence. And he says he's going to make you and me holy and blameless in Christ. Now, I have no idea what I'll look look like holy and blameless, but I promise you it'll be different than what I look like now. Because I'm nowhere near that. And yet the Lord says, trust me, I'm powerful to do what I said I'm going to do. We need to listen to the Lord. Brothers and sisters, I pray that the Spirit of God will so stir your heart that your heart will not be like Pharaoh's who, whose heart is, is hardened and who will not listen. But notice in verse 13 that it says that his heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. 
we need to acknowledge, brothers and sisters, it doesn't matter how many times the Lord proves himself strong in your life and in my life, there's a watching world that will refuse to bow the knee to Jesus Christ as Savior. They're going to see all the amazing things that God has done and will do in your midst. And we're convinced that if God would just do this or do that for that person, then they will come to Christ and they will accept him. Nope. They will not listen apart from the Holy Spirit moving and working in their life. But this is what I believe this passage, and specifically verse 13, wants us to see, is that the reason Pharaoh's heart was hardened isn't because Pharaoh is stronger than God. The reason this passage is worded the way it is is that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Why? Because God is sovereignly powerful. He's the one that's doing it. It's not that Pharaoh is able to kind of stand against this judgment that God is bringing. Nor will you. Some of you may be sitting here today thinking, you know what, I'm not living like I need to, but I will get things straight at some point, and I might be able to, because I do more good than bad, I might be able to stand against what God has for me in way of judgment. You will not. You're foolish to think that the wrath of God will spare you. As I read the other day, it's like a piece of toilet paper touching the surface of the sun. That's your life being cast upon the wrath of God. You will not make it unless the shield of the blood of Jesus Christ is upon you, unless you trust in him alone. Only then will your heart be softened. Only then will you listen. And only then will you have hope of this very promise. And it is this, Psalm 119, 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. And you have established the earth, and it stands fast. Let us pray.